1: Critchlow and in this Naked Neuroscience series, I'm busy stripping down breaking hot neuroscience research in partnership with the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies. In this episode, we contemplate the importance of play. We examine the child's brain, looking back for how the Victorians viewed babies.
2: They thought that when you were born, you had absolutely masses of moisture which filled up and saturated your body and your brain and it was this moisture which accounted for children's tendencies to dribble and cry.
1: Ask could early life stress like changing schools, parents divorcing or having an anxious overbearing mother ever be a good thing?
3: If you're exposed to at least moderate levels of adversity and stress early in life then this can actually shape your physiology in a way that you're better adapted to similar situations in adulthood.
1: Plus we examine the brains of young criminals and ask could brain anatomy and activity findings better inform youth rehabilitation services.
4: I think what this research is demonstrating is going to turn the penal reform program right round on its head. The reoffending rate is just under 80%. Now, if this had been a school or a heart hospital, people would have come and shut it down.
1: Oh, to come. First up, four children die every day as a result of abuse in America. Alone. At least 12 out of every 10,000 children worldwide are affected. There are likely many more cases that go unreported. Child abuse does not discriminate across gender, it affects boys and girls equally. Those with a physical or mental disability, however, are twice as vulnerable. Child abuse can take three forms physical, or emotional, so ignoring, rejecting, isolating or verbally abusing the child, or, thirdly, neglect, where a child may be left hungry or dirty without adequate clothing, shelter, supervision, medical or health care. Brad reported what he found to the NSPCC.
5: I'm a telephone engineer by trade and I was doing a routine call. I walked up to the door as normal and introduced myself to the woman. In the minute she opened the door... The smell hit me. I mean, it really hit me. The amount of rubbish and mess was staggering. I had to literally wade ankle-deep through through rubbish. Bin bags of garbage, open, empty tin cans, empty pizza boxes. To be honest, I didn't know what I was putting my feet in. The cats were all over the place. I could certainly smell urine and faeces. But when I actually got to my workstation, the the flies were landing on my face. I noticed that on the settee, along with the two adults, was a young toddler. This shocked me. I could not imagine a child living in this kind of environment. She had a ground in dirt that I know as a parent wasn't everyday dirt. It wasn't rough and tumble playing out dirt. It was ground in, built up over time. It was clear she had nowhere to play and didn't play.
1: We'll be hearing later about growing up in a physically abusive environment. But first, Naked Scientist Amelia Perry spoke to Dr Anna-Laura van Harmelen on the effects of emotional maltreatment, including neglect on the brains of children.
0: So my research actually um, suggests that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words and neglect might hurt your brain. The effects of emotional maltreatment on a later behaviour have been studied a lot and there's a whole cascade of negative consequences of emotional maltreatment. So people have more behavioural problems, they have more psychological problems, people are more anxious, more depressed. And what do your brain studies show us about the maltreatment's effect on the actual brain, on the development? I have studied the effects of emotional maltreatment in childhood on the structure of the brain, so the anatomy and the functioning, so how the brain works in adults that reported emotional maltreatment. And I found that child emotional maltreatment is related with the smaller part of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, which is really important for emotion regulation, stress response, and it's also really, really important for self-referential thinking, so thinking about yourself, about others. And what's really interesting is that Part of the brain is also more responsive when these individuals with emotional maltreatment are in a really negative interpersonal situation. So when when they're being ostracized, they have more activation in that brain part which we think uh, reflects more negative self and other referential thinking. So they're, they're just dwelling on that negative experience and uh, kind of ending up in a negative loop of negative thinking styles and negative cognitions. So the actual size of this region in the brain has actually decreased quite severely in these uh,
2: cases then with people suffering maltreatment. But what do we know about brain development in
0: early life? Just how malleable are our brains in this vital period before adolescence? Well, the brain continues to develop well into adulthood, and especially in childhood and adolescence, parts of the brain that are really important for emotion regulation and stress response are developing still. So they're also very sensitive to all kinds of influences from outside. And increased stress in that developmental time period changes the amount of hormones that are present in the brain. And uh, those hormones can actually change the way the brain grows. So we know that stress during this developmental time period can be detrimental to brain development.
1: Anna-Laura van Heermelen speaking with Amelia Perry. I next met with Batman Batmangelidge. She set up Kids' Company. It's a UK-based charity that supports over 36,000 young people who have experienced abuse. In recognition for her work, in 2013, Camilla was named as one of the UK's 100 Most Powerful Women by the BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour. And she was also appointed an Honorary Commander of the Order of the british empire so given a cbe kids company works to rebuild abused children's lives firstly by boosting resilience as camilla explains
4: the way we wrap resilience around vulnerable children is by considering their practical emotional and aspirational needs so we'll buy children underwear toothbrush find them somewhere to live a third of our under-14s who arrive at our street-level centres are sleeping on the floor, we will buy them a bed. And then we look at giving them attachment figures, either by strengthening the people who care for them within their family or by getting our staff to function as substitute parental figures so that the children can have this sense of a caring adult who's there for them through thick and thin. And then through the adult's imagination, we try and imagine the children uh, into the future and help the children think about what they might want to achieve in the future.
1: And I can imagine that quite a lot of these children will have observed quite a lot of violence in their early years. And so they've acquired that kind of violent, aggressive way of defending themselves almost in social situations. How on earth do you deal with that and how do you try and build a more reasonable outlook?
4: The majority of the children who come to our street-level centres, their primary way of protecting themselves is through violence. They sometimes choose violence as a defence mechanism, so they'll carry knives, um, sometimes firearms. In fact, UCL looked at our kids Uh, are 16 to 24-year-olds, and they found that one in five of them had been shot at and or stabbed with 50% witnessing shootings and stabbings in the last year. So the children are realistic, if you like, about the violence they're exposed to, and within the confines of their own possibilities, i.e. them left to themselves to fend for themselves, They work out different ways of protecting themselves. But there is another layer of violence which isn't what I call intentional violence. The second layer of violence they have is what I call responsive violence. The kids actually completely lose it emotionally. In fact, they have words for this. They call it, I flipped or I switched. And what they mean by that is that their stress levels get to such a point where it's almost as if their brain blows and they enter a space of extraordinary rage, during which they can smash up a space, they can hurt people, they don't actually even see people properly. They often superimpose the faces or the behaviors of past perpetrators on staff and then end up attacking staff imagining that it was a perpetrator from the past that is in the here and now. So there is some kind of an explosive reactive violence that they're capable of. It lasts about 45 minutes during which the child is completely overwhelmed and after which the child often says to us, oh, God, I don't know what happened, and they can't believe what the destruction they have generated because it almost felt like an out-of-body experience for them. When I first started working with these children 18 years ago, the one thing that struck me, I actually brought a group of scientists to look at these children's behaviours to try and acquire a better understanding of what was happening. And what the scientists have found collectively is that as a result of chronic childhood maltreatment, the brain functioning of these children is different. And because of that, their perceptions and the way they compute other people's behaviors, reactions, and emotions are completely different.
1: Professor Eamon McCrory from University College London has worked with Camilla and describes his findings scanning the brains of children who have been abused.
6: What we see in kids who have experienced abuse at home is that there's a heightened response in threat-related centres of the brains. It's involved in anticipatory pain processing. So it seems that maltreatment at home is associated with heightened vigilance to possible threats but also an increased anticipation that, that might be associated with negative outcome in terms of, of possibly being hit or struck. But in addition, we have we've carried out an FMI study where we show angry faces um, representing a threat to also in a subliminal way. So kids have no conscious experience of having perceived a face and we still see a very similar pattern of results. So even when children aren't aware that they've even seen a face in their environment, early adversity seems to attune the brain in a way to make kids attentive to environmental cues that may signal possible threats.
1: Is there any way that you can kind of change the brain back to normal, as it were, so that then sensitive well, to kind of anger and, and potential threats in the environment?
6: So that's, that's a brilliant question. And, you know, at UCL, we're carrying out now the first longitudinal study of kids who've experienced maltreatment using fMRI and that is going to allow us to address that very question because what you really need to look at is whether in some children do those brain differences normalise? So when they're moved into a safe um, foster family, when they receive um, certain kinds of intervention, you know, do those brain responses normalise? in line with other typically developing kids. And to answer that question, we really have to follow kids up over time and measure those brain responses and see whether they change. So we're currently halfway through now a four-year ESRC-funded study Mm -hmm. where we're doing exactly that. And we've just finished phase one. And we're hoping in in about a year and a half's time to be able to bring all of the kids back and, and see how they've developed. And we're looking both at brain structure and brain function And you would predict, based on what we know about resilience, that some of the kids will have fared pretty well and will we expect to show some normalisation of brain response. But it's it's unclear whether some differences might persist. And that's what we're going to be looking at.
1: And collaborator Professor Katia Rubia from King's College London on her findings.
6: We uh, did a a task, an
7: inhibition task, where people are forced to make mistakes in 50% of the trials. So we were particularly interested in error monitoring because children with child abuse have been shown to have problems with processing negative feedback. So what we basically found is they had enhanced activation in an error processing network in the brain. And we think that this is because they're hypersensitive to negative feedback and probably due to their experience, because whenever they did a mistake, probably led to physical abuse. They slow down more when they do mistake, and this is interesting because this has also been found in people with anxiety, and of course these children are very high in anxiety. So they're basically living in fear of making mistakes. During the motion processing task, they had abnormal enhanced activation in fear processing regions, The ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is crucial for fear. So we think this is because they have, due to their experience with physical abuse in childhood, they are hypersensitive to the motion of fear. And lastly, during concentration, we found reduced activation in concentration areas.
1: By looking at anatomy and activity, we can see that children who suffer from child abuse also suffer brain damage. The circuits in their brains are hypersensitive to threats, susceptible to fear. They find concentrating difficult and their brains are hardwired to freeze up when making decisions under conditions where they might experience punishment. Looking at statistics, those who suffer child abuse are nine times more likely to become involved in criminal activity and 30% of abused and neglected children, or later abuse their own children, continuing the cycle. Could these brain circuits ever be rewired back to normal to restore the child's behaviour and break the vicious cycle of criminality and abuse? Back to Camilla on how spending up to two years with kids' company seems to do just that.
4: They looked specifically at 12 to 17-year-old highly criminal boys that After 15 months, there's dramatic improvements in their emotional processing, but also that you could see changes in brain functioning when the kids' brains were looked at. And I think uh, it's the closest we've got to being able to evidence the potency of love and its impact on brain functioning.
1: And so, wow, so you can actually see the, the hardwiring of the child's brain being affected by being exposed to stress in early life. And then you can see how that correlates in terms of the rehabilitation program it's with improved behavior in these teenagers after being with you for between a year and two years.
4: Yes. The other interesting evidence that's coming through is that in conditions when you punish this type of child, Actually, the error networks of the brain go into overdrive, i.e. the kids end up making more and more mistakes. They don't correct their behavior when they're punished, whereas the control group who haven't been maltreated have a capacity to correct. I think what this proves is the underlying chronic anxiety state that is prevalent in these children, even if They uh, appear to be invincible and very aggressive and non-caring. Actually, underneath it, what you've got is a terrorised kid with high levels of anxiety.
1: So you're saying that basically these children, because they've suffered such trauma in early life, it's affected their brain in such a way that they, they can't process punishment in a way that... Uh, normal child would.
4: Yes, that's true. They don't process punishment in a way that's corrective. In fact, punishment makes them make more errors.
1: In that case, does this have ramifications for youth offenders' um, programme rehabilitation
4: schemes with the prison, for example, in the UK? It's a great question you ask, actually, because in fact, if you look across the world... Uh, in youth offending programs and child custody programs, there is an above 75% reoffending rate internationally. The only really successful program of youth custody that has been around was one in Turkey, where the model was closest to family care, i.e., care behavior formed the majority of the intervention. And that program ended up being the most successful out of international penal interventions in relation to vulnerable children. But in England, the reoffending rate is just under 80% in uh, child custody, youth offending, and youth custody. Now, if this had been a school that was failing at the rate of just under 80%, or a heart hospital, people would have come and shut it down and said it doesn't work. And in fact, I think what this research is demonstrating is going to turn the penal reform program right round on its head because, uh, A, it means that the children do not have the neuronal capacity to control their own behaviors appropriately, i.e., it's not that their brain is like another normal child and then they happen to make poor moral choices, which you imagine that through punishment you can correct, i.e. you can make them make better choices. That is not the case. What the research is showing is that these kids' brains are so damaged that in the first place they don't stop, they don't think, they don't have the capacity to retrieve the memory of being punished, to use it to correct their behaviours. In fact, you're looking at an invisible brain injury, if you like, And it's arguable whether we could describe them as criminals. I think we have to completely remove this word and start thinking about the fact that these kids have got impaired abilities to control their emotions and their energy. In years to come, we'll look back on our behavior now in relation to vulnerable children and it will be classed as a type of absurd witchcraft that came from irrationality. And because we are so sure that their behavior is a product of poor moral choices, we almost absolve ourselves of the responsibility to protect them and care for them appropriately.
1: Camilla batman from Kids' Company. I'm Hannah Critchlow, and in this Naked Neuroscience series, I'm busy stripping down breaking hot neuroscience research in partnership with the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies. In this episode, we contemplate the importance of play. We now look back in history. The Victorians had a firm belief in punishing criminals and were particularly shocked by children who crossed the line of the law. You may be familiar with Charles Dickens' Victorian classic novel where a young, destitute Oliver Twist picks a pocket or two with Fagin's London-based child gang. When Dickens wrote this book, children as young as 10 were being sent to prison. Naked scientist Amelia Perry caught up with Dr Hannah Newton from Cambridge University to explore how children were treated back in the day.
2: Obviously there are cases of children being treated badly in any period but to be honest I think really this is quite a big myth in the history of childhood and when you look back at parents' diaries and letters and personal documents from the early modern period and and before, the overwhelming picture is of kindness to children and concern about them and their upbringing. Part of the issue is that we have a slightly different conception of childhood to how people in the past understood it. And for us, the idea of a child starting work at a young age seems to us incompatible with a concept of childhood, but in the early modern period it was actually a necessity for financial survival that children contributed to the family income. It didn't mean they didn't see their children as children and children were still thought to be different from adults and things that distinguished them were their love of play, their curiosity, their need for affection and love. I know lots of parenting manuals exist. My mum has got about 20 on her shelf and it seems almost there are two different strands of parenting. One that's this strict authoritarian manner, or there's the more kind of nurturing, laid-back approach. Do you think those kind of approaches existed that many years ago? Yes, I think they did, actually. There's a lot of literature produced in the 17th century about how to be a good parent, and they thought it was a very important subject. And they tend to take a kind of moderate view. They believe that children should be nurtured and loved and that the primary duty of parents is to love and care for their children. But they also have very high expectations of children's behaviour, and they think that children should be obedient. I think in terms of different strands of parenting, this is detectable, because you can see parents writing in their letters and their diaries about parenting, and mothers occasionally, I think there's a gender element, mothers are often accused of being rather too fond of their children and, (laughs) and spoiling them. But there's equally great concern about being overly strict with children and bringing a child up in fear is thought to be not necessarily very good for the child's own development. So in, in the end, really, it's about moderation. They think love and affection, but also discipline and knowing the boundaries. So how did people view children's brains back then? What did they think about them? The main overriding characteristics of children was their moisture. They thought that when you were born, you had... Absolutely, masses of moisture which filled up and saturated your body and your brain. And it was this moisture which accounted for children's tendencies to dribble and cry and the soft texture of their skin. And I suppose they looked at old people and they thought that old people looked rather dry and wrinkly, (laughs) and ageing was therefore seen as a cooling and drying process. So you were born with lots of heat and moisture and you progressively dried out and cooled down until eventually you died, and that was the cause of natural death. And this moisture had a massive impact on children's brains. It was thought to one, one author wrote that children's brains are drowned and drunk with moisture and humours, um, and this was why children weren't very rational. And it also accounted for their emotional tendencies. Children cry very easily and get very happy and very sad very quickly. And that emotional fluctuation was put down to the fact that the rational soul, the part of the soul responsible for reason, was slightly incapacitated by all this liquid. And for this reason, children's brains were thought to be like wax. They were very impressionable, which made them peculiarly capable of learning... <laughs> and also made them a time in their life really when their personality was thought to be formed. This was really why parents needed to show affection to their children and teach them all the right manners and morals that they would need for the rest of their life. The brain was most impressionable for all influences, good and bad. Little children, babies, were thought to have very poor memories because their brains were so wet and so drenched that they couldn't really retain any impressions. But as a child got to the age of about seven, it dried out slightly and then suddenly became the perfect consistency for learning, which is why children started school at seven. And the other issue is that I suppose the treatment of a child, how they were brought up, was thought to be particularly important in that age group because they would remember how they had been treated So are there any records of brutality against children occurring in these earlier periods? Um, Yes, there is. The old Bailey records contain evidence of witness statements for crimes. They include cruelty to children. There was some allowance for correcting children. They called it moderate correction, which meant kind of beating a child, but it wasn't supposed to be violent. And I think the word beat for us conjures up images of really violent, aggressive, physical assault, but... In the early modern period it was perhaps more like how we might understand slapping or smacking a child having said that they did use canes and they did use birch twigs in the early modern period and i think there was considerable potential for this to turn into abuse having said that it wasn't really advisable and it was prosecuted quite severely in the courts the death of a child caused by beating was a heinous crime and was punishable by death for the perpetrator
1: Hannah Newton from Cambridge University. We close the show by discussing how a mild amount of stress in early life could actually have a positive effect for some. Dr. Matthias Schmidt from the Munich Max Planck Institute of Psychiatry studies this in mice.
3: One of the major risk factors for depression that we know of from the environment is the stress exposure. And here especially stress exposure early in life seems to be very detrimental in determining the risk of later disease.
1: And in humans, the type of early childhood stresses that you're talking about that might predispose to depression are things like, for example, being affected by violence at home or conflict at home, or even things like moving home or moving schools, for example, might increase your risk of depression later on in life.
3: Yes, this is true. In mice, obviously, we want to have a model system which is very controllable, but we don't want to do anything to the animals which is ethically not supportable. So what we do is moderate stressors where we basically alter the environment of the mother in a way that the maternal behaviour gets more erratic or less predictable, and that basically also affects the offspring. Using that sort of model, we can then ask the question of what is the long-term consequence of that.
1: And by stressing the mother, are the baby mice actually still weaning at that time? Are they still taking her milk? And in that case, could some of these stress factors be passed
7: on through the milk?
3: Yes, there's also the possibility that some of the stress factors of the mother are via the milk, getting into the baby pups, but actually it was shown that most of the effects are really transmitted via maternal behavior. So the mother, via her behavior, can actually have a very calming or very upsetting effect on the offspring, and it's really... Actually, a little bit like in humans, if you have a very predictable childhood with uh, very clear rules and no erratic situations, then this is usually not very stressful and good. And if the situation is very difficult or non-predictable, this is usually what was really stressful for, for kids and is also very stressful for mice.
1: But it's not the case that every single child that might have to move schools or or move house or might experience conflict within their their home, that they all go on to develop depression or anxiety, for example. So are you seeing that with the mice as well, that some mice are absolutely fine with this early experience in life and some mice just do seem to get depression?
3: Yes, so uh, this is actually the core of our research uh, approach. So what we see indeed is that as in humans, not all the individuals we exposed to stress eventually develop a depression-like symptom.
1: And what does, what does a slightly depressed or anxious mice look like?
3: We measure behaviours uh, in terms of anxiety. This is relatively straightforward. Mice uh, are afraid of open spaces, or they are afraid of very bright areas, but on the other hand, they want to explore their environment, maybe search for food. So we generate a little test arena where there's a conflict between exploring and an aversive uh, part of the arena. We have a very anxious mouse that will not explore those uh, areas. And we can measure other things like uh, hormonal regulation, motivation to get reward for instance which is also altered in depressed patients and we can really transpose it quite nicely to the animals.
1: So you were saying that some mice that experience stress during early childhood still are bold mice they go and explore their environment and they also have seem to have motivation for reward as well. So why is it that some mice seem okay and others don't?
3: Yes. As in humans, there's a strong genetic component of uh, psychiatric disorders and depression-specific. And we see that in humans, and we can also confirm that in animals. And here we have the opportunity to manipulate the genetic background of these animals and manipulate specific genes. And by, by doing that, we can shift the balance of vulnerability and resilience to stress.
1: So based on the mice's genetics, they can either be very resilient to any early life stresses uh, or they could be very predisposed to depression and anxiety. So is it the same in humans?
3: Yes, we also find genetic risk factors for depression in humans. On the one hand, stress is a risk factor for disease, but on the other hand, it is adaptive in a way. So if you're exposed to at least moderate levels of adversity and stress early in life, then this can actually shape your physiology in a way that you're better adapted to similar situations in adulthood. And the
1: stress factor, so the stress hormone in humans is something called cortisol. And the cortisol system in the brain is still developing in babies in the first five years and, and even further on into life. So could it be that stressful experiences very early on in childhood could then tweak or change that cortisol system or sensitivity in the brain to then actually help make some children more resilient in the future?
3: Yes, this is indeed what we find. And it's not only the cortisol system, but the stress system is really an orchestrated system with many factors which are active in the brain and in the periphery. And they basically shape the physiology of an individual. And those experiences early in life, within a certain range at least, they're really meant to shape your body in a way so that it can deal better with similar situations. We all know that stress is part of everyday life and it was for millions of years before and just our physiology is adapted in a way to deal with that and also to develop into that so if you're growing up in a very adverse circumstances then your body should better adapt to that so that you can actively cope with the situation later on we are now living in a world where a lot of things change very quickly and i think this is the core of the problem because you're growing up in a very protected home maybe but then you have to face many stressors in adult life or vice versa you're growing up under very adverse situations but then your adult life is very different
1: and what genes are involved in this resilience to stress Um, is it the cortisol system or is it different genes
3: We do find genes which are involved in the regulation of the stress system, which is the system, the main system, which is producing cortisol as an end product in humans, which are also directly modulating the vulnerability of animals to stressful life events
1: so bottom line then is that stress in early childhood might not actually be a bad thing it might make you more resilient and more likely to flourish later on in life do you think we'll ever get to a stage where we could have biomarkers so biological markers which could indicate whether an individual is going to grow up to be a very resilient person later in life or whether they're going to be more likely to become depressed
3: Yes, so this is, this is exactly the way we are going, and we, we hope uh, to get there in the near future. At the moment, as I said, uh, depression is diagnosed just by the symptoms and then treated with the same drugs, independent of what genetic background you have, independent of what early life history you have. We are hoping, in, in the animal model, this is already working quite well, to identify biomarkers that allow us then to really individualize our treatment and our diagnosis to say... Patient A has a specific early life history together with a specific set of genes, which explains why he or she is suffering from depression and asks for very specific treatment. The same treatment would not work in patient B because he or she has a different history and a different set of genes and just needs a different treatment. And we just have to step away from this one drug for everyone and just really go into this personalized medicine and and help people And
1: that's all we have time for this month, I'm afraid. If you have any questions or comments, please do get in touch. It's hannah at thenakedscientists.com. Thanks to all those who took part in the programme. The NSPCC, Amelia Perry, Dr. Anna-Laura van Harmelen, Camilla Batman-Jalic, Eamon McCrory, Katia Rubia, Hannah Newton and Mattia Schmidt. Signing off, I'm Hannah Critchlow with this special Naked Neuroscience episode supported by the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies. See you next month to open our minds.